your deal? <laughs> That's an awesome question. <laughs> Let me try to explain my deal with the story. And it's a three-chapter story. And all you have to keep in mind is that chapter one sucks, chapter two is fantastic, and chapter three is where things get really, really interesting. Chapter one is pre-industrial revolution. And thanks to a lot of unbelievably good, careful, nerdy research, we have a pretty clear picture about what people's lives were like and about what the state of our civilization was for hundreds and hundreds of years before the Industrial Revolution. And the basic story is that all of humanity was living in a Malthusian hell. Uh, for example, in, in Britain, for the entire millennium, the only way people on average got more wealthy is if there were fewer people. And you can just watch that yo-yo back and forth. More people, everyone has a worse life. Things improve a little bit because population has gone down. The explanation is there was only a fixed amount of stuff to go around. So the only way we got more stuff is if there were fewer people. Thanks to some tinkering with the steam engine and a few other things, humanity went, this is chapter two. Uh, that was the sucky part. Chapter two is this tinkering with the steam engine and other technologies put humanity on an entirely different trajectory, basically because it allowed us to overcome the limitations of muscle power, and the amount of stuff in the world just took off like we had never, ever seen before. And it started this thing that I call the cycle of prosperity, which has lasted for, you know, 200 plus years. And there are two halves to the cycle. Number one is more stuff, just this industrial engine cranking out, un by, by any historical standard, crazy amounts of stuff, more stuff all the time, better stuff all the time. And I don't just mean, you know, uh, cheap plastic trinkets and Happy Meals. I mean clothing, food, shelter, education, healthcare, like the stuff we really care about. Crazy amounts more stuff. The other half of that cycle of prosperity was that the average person had access, could buy more and more of that stuff over time. This was not the immiseration of the, protel the, the, the prot uh, proletariat, proletariat. This was exactly the opposite of it. And it turns out that that industrial age, that, that ridiculous engine of stuff, had a bottomless thirst for human labor. At, at all different levels of skill and education and ability, we needed tons of labor to make that engine run. So the cycle was more stuff, more stuff over time, average person has more and more access to that stuff by virtue of their labor income. Now, the reason my, Eric Brynjolfsson and I wrote the book is it feels to us like we're heading into chapter three of that story, and a lot of the evidence says that one half of that cycle continues to work really well. It's the stuff generation cycle, especially in the digital realm, the amount of stuff that we're cranking out, the, the coolness of the stuff, the low price of the stuff, I don't think we've seen anything like it before. Uh, you know, keep in mind, we are all carrying around in our pockets supercomputers. I mean this literally by the standard of a generation ago that puts us in touch with resources that would boggle the imaginations of the Rockefellers. So the stuff half of the cycle, I think, is working extraordinarily well, I believe better than ever. The other half, the we have access to that stuff by our labor income, there's a lot of evidence that there's some challenge there. Median income in the states has been stagnant for 15 to 20 years. Uh, wages are not going up at anything like their historic rate. In most of the countries in the rich world, the middle class is very clearly getting hollowed out. The 1% and the 1% of the 1% are pulling away, and the rest of us, are, our labor doesn't appear to be as valuable anymore. That's a real challenge. Uh, the, and 
nobody knows if this is a temporary interruption to that half of the cycle of prosperity or if this is the new normal. Uh, I kind of think, not tomorrow, but I kind of think this might be the new normal simply because as technology can do more and more, as we get technologies that can drive cars and win on Jeopardy and write clean prose and do all these amazing things, we're going to need labor basically, less and less. So I think we might be heading into a new normal. Again, this is not next month, but I, I think we might be headed there. It sounds, though, not but, so much a new normal as a, as a revolution. Well, th that depends on what we do with it. The, the, the reason I wanted to come here and talk with all of you was this community of creative types and designers. You guys have been on the vanguard of this for a while. And the stuff that you do for a living has maintained its value in a really admirable way. Our economy still needs a lot of uh, designers and creative types. I'm sure you would all like to get paid more for what you're bringing to the table, but we still need a lot of you guys. And, and what I'm interested in as we look forward is, is more of the workforce, is more of the economy going to look like you all, kind of living in the gig or the freelance economy? The other thing that I find really interesting, are the machines, are the technologies going to start to get really good at the kind of things that you do for a living or not? I don't think anybody knows the answer to either of those questions, but they're both pretty important questions. Let's talk about the labor bargain. Let's leap ahead a generation, past the new normal to the second machine age, which you feel, if you are going to liken the moment when we enter that age to the moment we we're fully in the industrial age with Watt's steam engine tweak. What do you think it would be? And what do you think that post-revolutionary period would look like? Let's say I've got half a century left on the planet. And let's think, come up with crazy gene editing techniques that let me opt into living forever. Um, let's say I've got half a century left. I honestly believe that I am going to live to see this ridiculously abundant economy. Just turns out just, un just crazy amounts of stuff and needs little human labor in order to do that. Our farms, our factories, our warehouses, our highways, our infrastructure, these things are going to be automated in 50 years. I cannot see a future where that's not the case. It, it just makes no sense to me. If you look around a leading, bleeding edge factory today, you're really hard pressed to see a lot of people there. Uh, I have ridden in the Google autonomous car I cannot wait for that car to take over. We are such bad drivers because we're getting all these signals from our phones and the screaming kid in the back seat. For God's sake, let's automate that. We're killing 30,000 people a year on the roads in this country. So in my future is a much, much more productive and automated future. I know you're not going to end there because you've talked about the disruption, the breaking of the labor bargain, and what happens to people who can't find a place. I mean, describe the utopian vision 50 years from now, you're being kept alive by artificially grown organs. And uh, so 50 years from now, I'm a science fiction maniac, so I've seen this scenario many times for many different ways. People don't have to work, or they can't work, but they can still live. They're, everybody is on some basic level of subsidy, all right? That is not impossible, according to your notion of what the next revolution might bring. So what's the utopian vision? What's the dystopian vision? Or do you have a vision that you really believe? I think it's too far out to have one that I believe in. I do not know what the end state or the trajectory looks like. The happy end state is all burning man all the time. 
that's the happy that's one? The, well, and maybe you don't like being all, all gritty in a desert, but this, this nonstop celebration of our humanity and the gift economy, and it's just woohoo, and they're great drugs, you know, fine. Um, that, I think that's a pretty good vision in a lot of ways. Or a Star Trek, where we, where we just bravely explore a new world. No one ever complains about their paycheck on Star Trek, right? The, the dystopian one, you don't have to look too far to find dystopian science fiction. And a lot of the visions are that the elite have removed themselves. It's kind of Blade Runner, right? They've removed themselves off the planet, literally. And we're all kind of scrapping around for the stuff that's left. The short-term versions of that, how many of us here are fans of William Gibson? Stupid question, right? Uh, his latest book is, I thought, just a wonderful, fairly near-term vision of what might happen if we don't make better choices. There's clearly a small elite, but there's a lot of people just, just scrambling to get by. Scrambling to get by is what we've got now for a lot of people. Let me jump in, though, because I, I completely agree in a sense. It is important not to lose sight of the fact that privation and hunger are not problems in America. They are not problems, by and large, in this country. So again, we have an abundant world. The scrambling to get by, I think, is even more about what's my community, what am I here for, what, do I, what am I doing with my... That's the labor bargain. Yeah, you we, have yeah, a yeah. reason... We've yep. organized our lives around work. Which is, why I work. Like, which is why I like work a lot. It, it, it's a force that gives lives and... and, and meaning and binds communities together. And the thing that actually worries me as I look into my farther out crystal ball is not, are we going to have enough stuff? Absolutely we are. What is a healthy community? What does a good life look like when it's not dominated by work the way we think about it today? That, that's a head scratcher. I guess I was thinking that volunteerism would get more prestige, uh, you know, responsibility without a paycheck attached. But in the end, it would require the government, essentially, to give everybody a wage, whether they worked or not. And uh, it's hard to get your head around that in our, in our current political environment. But I guess I would ask you guys, you know, do you envision a world where almost all jobs are done by machines? And, and do you know if you'd find a place in it? I mean, again, as, as Andrew said, you guys are all uh, interested in design. Many of you are designers. Others are associated with it, I assume. Uh, that's why you're here, right? You're all kind of related to design in some way. Show of hands. Okay, yeah, all right, just wanted yes. to make sure. I wander into places where I have no reason being all the time, so that's... <laughs> uh, but, um, so maybe you think, you know, even if you wouldn't out admit it out loud, that deep in your heart of hearts you might be exempt from this, but... But the only way that they're all exempt from this trend is if there is something absolutely ineffable about the, the work of design that a machine could never, ever learn. To believe that, you have to be, I think the term is a vitalist. You have to believe in something that, that's, that's unseizable or imperceptible between our ears. You should not believe that. This is a computer. Anything. It, oh, 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 wow. Now, that's a whole separate debate. 
That is such a separate debate. And I've, I mean, I've been on both sides of this argument, actually. Yeah. Let me be clear where I am on this debate. There is nothing preventing, theoretically, there's nothing preventing a computer from learning to do anything that any human being can do. It's a question of time. Which frame. is different from the brain being a computer. Fine. If my metaphor doesn't make sense for you, that's No, fine. no, no. I mean, there's, there's a whole host of of other issues, both genetic and biochemical and Brain is an information processing doohickey. Does that work better for you? No. <laughs> By no means. But now we're wandering off the course. Uh, we were going to talk for 15 minutes roughly and then throw it out to you guys, because otherwise we'll just fight the whole time. <laughs> so We uh, might anyway. <laughs> does anybody have any questions? I know that was that no? It's like somebody. Uh, it's like somebody at an auction scratching. Hi. It's like that guy. You gesticulate um, wildly so we know where you are. Thank you. So, uh, thanks for that conversation. I, uh, I'm sure, like many, uh, I, I've been scribbling down uh, some things. So I'm going to try and pick one thing. Um, it's a really challenging uh, conversation, and you you sort of like just brushed over it. I think the thing I'm most curious about is how do you see the levels of privilege that exist very uh, in high contrast right now existing in this uh, near or far future of yours? Um, and before I hand that off, I'll ask this like, or leave this comment in there, which is like, who makes these machines and who decides? Because right now, it's of privilege to uh, to drive in a driverless car. Like that's not something that's accessible to those that are less privileged. So just uh, with technology related to privilege and having access to it, I guess I'm curious about like what your thoughts are and and uh, like where that lands. Because we're talking about like, I mean, if we go really 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 uh, far back, and now I'm like ranting a little bit. Sorry. Like Henry Ford, as my uh, if my knowledge serves me, uh, was loosely responsible for or, or influencing the education system to teach people how to work in factories and invented the middle class. So if we take away people's jobs, dot 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 dot, leaving the question to you. There's an uh, there's an apocryphal story we put in one of our books about Henry Ford Jr and Walter Ruther, who was the head of the auto workers union, touring a new high-tech factory together. And they're, and they're kind of joshing around. So Henry says to Walter Ruther, hey, Walter, how are you going to get those robots to pay union dues? And without missing a beat, Walter turns around and says, hey, Henry, how are you going to get them to buy cars? Ah. So y you asked a couple different, like, very, very serious questions. One is about who makes the technologies and who decides. Technology production is an incredibly decentralized activity. None of us get to decide that course individually. If the US government decided it wanted to shut down Silicon Valley, it could probably do that. Do, do you think that would meaningfully alter the course of technology development around the world? A absolutely not. Uh, so it, I, I look at that as- I just as say the US government could not do that. Okay. But, okay. you know, you're, you're still, but it's just even so if, easy even to if, casually even if say you that grant they can... That, the, the, the course of technology is not in the hands of any, any small group of people at all, right? So the technologies are going to permeate more and more. They are going to do what they do 
which is what capitalism does, which is an ongoing process of creative destruction. Industries get destroyed and created, companies get destroyed and created, jobs get destroyed and created. That's been going on for a while. I think of technology as an accelerator to that phenomenon. If we set up a, a, a body of wise men to make sure that we only supported job supporting technologies and no job killing technologies, A, they would blow it, and B, that's a really, really bad idea. Okay? Uh, so then you ask the question about uh, how do we, is, is this inequality that we're seeing and that's increasing very quickly, is that hardwired into the system or can we affect it? Yes and yes. As we've looked around at, at the, the things that technology does, one of the things that it appears to be doing is increasing winner-take-all dynamics in a lot of areas. This is kind of easy to understand. Um, somebody shout out the name of the world's best cello player. Somebody shout out the name of the world's third best cello player. When you've got access to the best, you don't settle for the rest. So technology tends to lead to these kinds of high levels of inequality. Not the only factor, but a factor. Can we do anything about it? Hell yeah, we can do things about it. That's why we have a tax system. That's why we have a transfer system. We can do things. Now that said, do I believe that we should be taxing the wealthy back to a, med a, a middle class level of income and distributing that throughout the economy? I want to be really clear. No, I do not. Um, and then a deep sorry. silence fell over the room. Got it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so at the very beginning of your three chapters of human whatever, whatever, you talked about population. Um, and you talked about population as it relates to stuff. Um, but then you didn't really talk about population in the third chapter at all. And we have a huge population at this point. Um, and a huge population what? At this point. We do. Right. And it's going to get bigger, right? Um, so could you maybe talk a little bit more about the growth of population in reference to resources, but also in reference to roles in society. Yeah. And the, the short answer here is don't worry, because even though, like you say, uh, it, exactly in the wake of the Industrial Revolution, human population went like this after going like this, at the same time, we all became wealthier around the world. The number, not the percentage, the number of people living in dire poverty is going down very quickly around the world, quicker than we've ever seen before. We're on track to eliminate the most dire poverty around the world, I think within 10 or 20 years. So even as our world has become more populous, uh, we are, people are not living worse lives, they're living better lives as a result. That is not independent of my twin forces of capitalism and technology. That's because of those forces. And then with the huge exception, with the big exception of cooking our planet with global warming, which is real, which we're causing, which we need to do something about, with that exception, almost every environmental indicator that you want to look at is getting better instead of worse over time. The, the number of acres around the world, not just the U.S., the world devoted to cropland, is slowly going down, not up, even as population takes off and ev even as we demand more and better calories. When you look around and around and around, you see this incredibly happy phenomenon. You don't hear about it in the news. It's deeply underappreciated. But we're, with, again, with the exception of, of warming up our planet, we are treading more lightly on the planet. I think that's some of the best news going. I have uh, for maybe one more question. Yeah. So I'm, ju I'm just pondering, um, props to the, the conversation you guys are having. I'm, I'm seeing like uh, 
technology evolve at, at, at a rate that, it, that is outrageous, especially with quantum computing coming around, you have qubits, and the human brain is, I, I think, is a computer to me at least, that can make millions upon millions of decisions in, in its own realm. So what, what I see is like, as we evolve and machine learning is, is, is progressing, do you see qu quantum computing to kind of take over and be that next evolution of te technology that, that may start making its own decisions? Or maybe are we actually evolving as human beings by recreating ourselves as a machine in some way or, an, or another? Could, could that be our own like Terminator de facto? Like <laughs> you know, we, we and the machines are coming together, I believe in largely productive ways. If you ever wanna have a good cry, I mean this seriously, go pull up the YouTube videos about people who have their hearing aids, their cochlear implants turned on for the first time. It doesn't matter how much empathy you have, you will cry about this. It's an amazing phenomenon. So with technology and sticking it into our bodies, we are bringing hearing back to the deaf. In a few more years, we're gonna bring sight back to the blind. So I am all about this cyborg future. Let's put technology in us that lets us go back and experience the world more deeply. You ask about quantum computing, I don't think anybody knows what's going to happen there. If and when we do figure out how to do it, it will be a game changer that will make the steam engine look like a, like, like a quaint joke. And then the last thing, you mentioned artificial intelligence and machine learning. That, thing, that stuff is progressing by leaps and bounds. There are these really impressive recent demonstrations and recent advances. It's not anywhere near mimicking everything that's going on up here, but I sincerely hope I, wanna, I, I think this is a good note to end on. I sincerely hope we turn over more and more of our important societal decisions, not entirely to the machines, but we involve the machines more deeply in them for exactly the reasons that Brooke was talking about. We know how flawed and biased and inconsistent our decision-making processes are. We need to buttress them with technology so that we can bring together the stuff that we're best at with what the machines are actually good at and continue to make our world a better place. Thank you.